Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's Isaiah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows. And you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about like crazy and incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date, and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spook also has a, a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, like our tournament episodes are going to be, oh, like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Feral. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of my brother's sneakers exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash my brother's sneakers. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral. And buy some comfortable socks. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, and uh, if you like that music playing there, that's uh, from a band called Les Blanks. You can go to lesblanks.com, check out more of their stuff. And they also have another band called Holy Folk. Kind of like Holy Fuck, but folk. And uh, I think they have a website, too. They're, they have a new album coming out. You should check that out. Um, if you haven't listened to my show before, it is just kind of what the title there implies. It's a chat. I have a chat with a person. More of a open-ended conversation. You know, we instead of a formal question and answer. Today's episode is great. I have... Uh, John Jughead Pearson, who was in such bands as uh, Even in Blackouts, Screeching Weasel. He's also a playwright, a novelist. It's He's done a lot to say. He's a creative force to say for sure. And uh, before I get into it, I just want to tell a weird little story. Um, if you listen to my show regularly, Lee, 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 you know that I uh, recently moved in with my girlfriend. And I was moving her stuff out of her place uh, while she was uh, at school studying because she's got a big brain and I don't. Uh, I have an average brain. She has a science brain. I have a, I like um, Walking Dead brain and Simple Things brain. Not that that's a simple show. I like that show quite a bit. Not to knock knock it. But anyway, I was going in in and out of her apartment a ton. And on one of my return trips, I go into her apartment and I find a man sprawled out naked 
on the floor masturbating and he quickly jumps up and he's like what are you what are you doing and i'm like what are you doing and he's like who are you looking for i'm like what the fuck are you doing now it needs to be stated here that um she had a stalker recently a guy who lived in her building left a note on her door very creepy so we were very on edge about this so while i'm arguing with this man who we're both at the same level of panic and the only difference is, is he's cupping his balls and i'm in you know shitty shorts and a t-shirt and i'm thinking i'm gonna have to fight a naked man and i'm i you know i've never wrestled around with a man even in a positive uh passionate level <laughs> this was new ground for me and i was but i was thinking like this guy is in here and he's marking his territory and he's letting me know that he's you know that he owns my girlfriend and then he's like yelling at me he's like this is apartment seven and i'm like yeah i know this is apartment seven and then i look to the left of the door and i noticed none of the things that i had left there to be moved to the dumpster were there and that I wasn't in her building. I was in the adjacent building, which looks identical to her building. <laughs> so I quickly turned and ran down the stairs and yelled, I'm in the wrong building. And uh, that's uh, my tale of weirdness. And I hope I never have to fight a naked man. But my, I guess the moral of the story is um, wear your glasses when you're helping your girlfriend move out. Uh, now we're going to go uh, on to my conversation with John Jughead Pearson. It's a great one. Please enjoy. He's an awesome dude. Uh, you know what's weird is when I first met you, I kind of was a... I knew of Screeching Weasel, but I was kind of oblivious that you were the same guy. I think that you were in the band until like, I think years later. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, my first introduction to you as a creative individual was, and I can't remember the play it was, but I saw a play that you did at uh, the Neo-Futurists. What do they call that? The Neo-Futurarium? Yeah, the Neo-Futurarium. That Steve Walker, our mutual friend, directed, and I was really blown away by the play. Oh. That was either uh, the one that he directed. There was either Simulticity or it was the. Uh, oh, that one the long title. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually think it might have been the one with the long title. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the the unfinished works of Sir Linear Scribble was. That's the, what I saw. That's what I saw. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it, it, that's the. What's fascinating to me is I've always, I guess, I mean, I've always been interested in having multiple creative ventures but i'm just not capable <laughs> uh and you oh, oh go ahead i'm sorry uh, i i always go back and forth with that because i i sometimes you know you can there's two ways of looking at it. it's like a lack of being able to commit to one skill you know i don't think i'm any good at any one skill i just sort of uh move about but the more positive way i look at it is i just like redefining myself all the time and being challenged but once again, you can look at the other side and say, well, if you really finesse a skill, that is challenging. But so I don't know. Oh, I'm going to turn off of uh, Facebook. It just made a sound. So I don't want to make sounds during the 
podcast. I, I already thought you were uh, clipping your nails with your mouse. So <laughs> yeah, I'm digitally clicking my clipping my nails now. <laughs> but I like I would like that real casual. And it, if you are clipping your nails in front of somebody, that is a real status move. <laughs> There's a, a very subtle go fuck yourself. Yeah, a friend of mine that uh, was in a improv group. Uh, I don't know if you know Edmund O'Brien, but we were in. Uh, Sheila, Sheila improv group together. I didn't know you were that. Sheila. That, they were Sheila was also a very popular thing in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we we ran for almost two and a half years at the Organic Theater with a show called The Giant Wall Plot Twists, and we went to Edinburgh, Scotland, and a couple other places around the country. Um, but that, yeah, that was a pretty popular. Show. And we had uh, we actually took over the the stage at Jimmy's Woodlawn Tap in Hyde Park because uh, that's. So we used to do there. We took that away from um, Heart of Giant guys. Heart of Giant, yeah. And originally, you know, way back was uh, Compass Players. So, yeah, I remember I I sat in at a improv thing with Heart uh, of Giant, and I couldn't. First of all, I because I'm a working class dope, like come from the working class family world. The, the intimidation level of the University of Chicago students being in the audience. I was like, I'm not smart enough to be here. It's like, yeah. Yeah, those guys are, yeah, really highly intelligent. But well, let me finish my story. We can go there, too, if you want. No, go ahead. Um, but, but Edmund O'Brien actually tried to, he auditioned for the Neo Futurist when I did, and he did a piece where he clipped his nails while he was doing a monologue, and he got the opposite effect of what he thought. He thought it would be risky, but the, but the Neo Futurists sometimes are shocking in their, like, you think, hey, I'm going to do a play naked and get in, you know, because that's what, you're supposed to do something edgy. Uh, but no, they just were disgusted by him <laughs> cutting his toenails. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, Car of Giant people are great. Uh, you know, I work with Phil Rodarelli, who was part of that group, and Greg Cotis and Scott Herms. Cotis who went on to win a, a Tony for uh, You're in Town. On with- yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well- uh, yeah. I went to go see it when it was off Broadway there. So. Yeah, and, and who, Mark, Mark, who is the guy who did the music for that? Uh, yeah, you just got a Mark. I didn't know Mark very well. I can't remember. I can't think of his name, his last name right now. Yeah, he was. He Holloman was, or Mark. I uh, can't remember. I want to say Holloman, but I don't know if that's correct. But he was, Yeah, that sounds about right. He was a very talented. Uh, but like when you were when you were a younger person, because like I kind of was always drawn to comedy stuff and, and I guess writing. But you did so much stuff. Did you like? Did you have one thing as a kid you were like gunning for? Like I'm going to be in a rock band. No, I think that's what kind of happened to me. Where I, I never had I, my you know my family went through a lot of chaos in my formative years. My father left, and my mom was with five kids raising it on her own. So there's a lot of chaos at my house. So there was no real time to focus on what I wanted to do. So I kind of graduated from high school not knowing what to do at all. I just kind of uh, fell into Columbia College because a couple of my other friends had gone there. Um, but I actually went for literature. I didn't even go for theater. I just, you know, then I met Steve Walker and a bunch of, uh, Matt O'Neill, a bunch of uh, Dino Samatopoulos and Cromer. Uh, kind of got uh, moved in that direction to start writing. But I didn't, I never had any goal. Even the band was sort of just, I worked at a movie theater and I met Ben Foster, Ben Weasel, or I, I knew him from elementary school, but we met again. And we were just kind of bored and started a band. And 
I think we're just kind of motivated people. So instead of it just being a band that stayed in a garage, we immediately were like scheduling shows downtown with, you know, places where Naked Raygun were playing and things like that. Did you now to sort of go back to because you said something that sparked my interest, I think mostly because it rings a personal bell with me. But I don't know if you, you said your father left when you were very young. Yeah, he was still, you know, he would still come and visit us on Sundays, but uh, he was a, it wasn't, it was a big financial burden on my mom. And my mom, you know, was sort of old tradition. She had never worked before. So she was kind of left on her own, not knowing how to drive. Not, and, you know, with the kids from my sister was one, I was five, and then there was 10, 11, and 12. So she had to redefine herself, you know. And it just kind of, the, the older brothers kind of went through difficult times because they were at the age where they started to rebel without a father whereas I me and my younger sister just sort of clung to my mom because that's interesting because my father died when I was 13 I was the youngest of five and it was it's it was a very similar situation where the older brothers were rebelling and getting into shit tons of trouble <laughs> yeah and yeah I, yeah but I mean, I, I always, I always wonder, like, how much of that had to do with sort of, I don't know, the, how much of that was sort of a catalyst into creativity, and I was wondering if that was sort of with you, if that was sort of something uh, that caused some sort of introspection, or who knows what. Yeah, I believe it's, you know, there's certain measures of nature and nurture that cause that, but, I, but I, yeah, I definitely think if I hadn't had uh, those influences, I probably would have gone in another direction. Um, I don't know. It's weird. Like, if I had more support from my mother at the time, I may have not become an artist. <laughs> uh, she was gunning for a, a, a teacher, which is the only other thing I've ever wanted to do was teach. Um, did you have like a, did you just want to teach like high school or did you want to teach something? Um, I tried, uh, I actually, when I was at Columbia, I, I did a uh, internship where I, uh, assistant taught at high school and I, I, I hated it so I think it was more I wanted to have students that wanted to learn <laughs> so you know it, it, it became the idea of being like college or I really just want to be I just want to go to different colleges and teach whatever I want more like adjunct yeah yeah I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't really get in line with the educational system and I didn't even in Columbia I just couldn't I, I just couldn't acclimate to it and I just ended up being like alright I'm gonna see if I can do this shit on my own which yeah but, same here I, I actually talk about uh, I often talk about how I went I didn't even wasn't even going for a degree I never went to a counselor I went to a counselor once at Columbia and it, the, the story is great because I, I since our family was in my mom was making $12,000 a year so I got luckily I got grants to go to school or else I wouldn't be able to go um but one day I went to a counselor because I wanted to get into some class and and she pulls out my files and she pulls it out and she looks at me and she goes, you graduated. And I, and I said, does that mean I have to leave? And she goes, well, after the semester, yeah, you can't get any more grants. So I never really went for any kind of purpose other than to learn. I, and I didn't even have any kind of one degree. I didn't even go for it. You know, I didn't even go to the ceremony. I don't even have it on paper. Yeah, I don't either. I don't. I, I. I mean, I barely made it out of high school. But it, it's interesting because it's, and I, I think I know this with a lot of people, sort of in our worlds, is like, they were never good at school, but they were good at learning. And it's it, like most of my friends are college dropouts, and some of them are like, 
very creative, successful people, and it's like it makes you wonder if there's something off with the system that like highly brilliant people end up like meandering away from it. Yeah, well, I think part of learning is is sort of learning uh, a discipline skills. Is kind of, I mean that's a big part of it, and some people just don't. I think a lot of smart people are very well at being disciplined. <laughs> you know, uh, I was actually I was a pretty good student through all the way through elementary and high school, but then something just sort of happened to me where I I wouldn't even say I didn't care anymore. I just wasn't. I didn't have any plan. I didn't. So there was no real use for that sort of structure anymore for me. Yeah. I did, now, with the with the music stuff, did you, like, because Screeching Weasel was a big, I would, I guess, but you were also doing the plays at the same time. Were you not writing plays and... Yeah, for a while there, I was, uh, I was book for, I mean, not book, I was play for, for album. Like, uh, up until, like, uh, 10 records, I also had 10 plays produced. So I would basically... Uh, work on a show, then go on tour and write the play while I was on tour, then come back and do a show. So it was, yeah, one for one for quite a long time. That's, I mean, to me, that's, the fact that to write 10 plays is is is, is in and of itself fucking impressive. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I just, I can't focus on one thing. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, you can, and quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's more like, I just don't, my more positive view on it is I think if I were just doing a novel and just reading novels, I, I, I wouldn't like it. I think I sort of pull creativity from all different avenues and then it all sort of gets used in every single one of them. Like I'm just sort of studying the world and it'll just come out in different forms. I've sort of accepted that. Um, but I do think that makes me uh, incapable of actually perfecting any one skill. I do believe that. Um, I think a lot of people would argue with you because your stuff is really good. <laughs> but it's interesting because you said you're like exploring the world and stuff, and I've always kind of thought of it like a lot of it was sort of trying to figure out. I, I thought like my exploring creativity was trying to just figure out who the fuck I am. Like I, I was, I, I felt like there, if I got to some certain point, I would maybe find peace within myself. Not, not really true, but. But I mean, is that sort of, did you feel that at all with your exploring different avenues? Oh, oh yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a part of what I learned at the Neo Futures is the more you try to get personal and, I, and there's, there's a thin line between being personal and, you know, sharing diary entries. Um, but the more you get personal, the more uh, sort of, what do you call it? Every man you get, the more uh, universal it becomes. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I, writing for me mostly, mostly like book writing, novel writing, what is more about frustration for me because I, I I'm not a very good wordsmith, so it's a lot of work. Um, so I think a lot of writing for me is just trying to figure out writing, even more than just trying to figure out myself. It's just trying to figure out what words mean. I think I have a little bit of dyslexia. Yeah, I have. Uh... I miss. I use words that just sound like other words, so I'll be. I'll misuse them, but they sound. And I don't know if that's dyslexia, but it. It's just like some weird mental thing, and probably sometimes socially, I look like a real jackass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I have the same thing, and I, I also hear. I'll also hear things uh, wrong too, but it often leads to like some funny interactions. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but, but it's not my. It's not my hearing. It's my. I think it's the way I interpret words in my mind. Uh, 
Like there's something odd going on in there that alters things. Yeah, because I found myself very young being like attracted to, you know, like Groucho Marx wordplay. And I think, I don't know if that was just because it went along with my weird brain or it was like, <laughs> or, or what. Now, when you, I don't know, like to me, like writing a novel is the most intimidating concept in the world. And do you, do you, how do you go about like, is it just like something that strikes you? Or is it something you sort of slave over for a while, like the, conceptually? Or do you just sort of sit down and go, all right, here we go? No, I am not. You know how Stephen King talks about he, he writes a page a day. I am not that kind of novelist. That's why I have two done. And that was the first thing I started doing. That was when I was got out of high school. That's what I wanted to do the most was to write a novel. So I've done two in, what, 30 years, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 the most painful out of all the projects I do. Um, it is it is it is a skill in learning how to make things longer. Um, it's it feels like I'm being a little uh, I don't know, what's that word too into myself too self-absorbed when I'm writing a novel, but you kind of have to. Um, I, I kind of come up with a skeleton of a of a chapter, and then I'll have to go back and add words and add descriptions. Um, so it's sort of it's built from the I'll have a skeleton, and then I'll like blow it up like a balloon. Yeah, I think like like uh, 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 what's his name Elmore, uh, the guy who wrote Black Dahlia and uh, L.A. Company. Leonard Elmore. Leonard Elmore. I always want to call yeah. him James Elmore, <laughs> but <laughs> completely a different world. But uh, <laughs> he'll write like almost a book-sized thing of notes before he actually even sit. And I'm like, I couldn't. Like that seems annoying to me. Yeah, yeah. I work. Uh, I do that more with with plays. I actually do that. I'll I'll have a. I have to write out notes in by hand first, like some dialogue I hear and stuff. But the novel, I'll, I'll do straight into the computer. And uh, like the last one, Clarence, uh, Last Temptation of Clarence Oddbody, I pretty much did linear in a linear order. I wrote it linear, uh, like from beginning to end. Uh, Weasels in a Box was all over the place, and it shows in the in the book. It's very nonlinear, and I wrote different parts of it at different times. Um, but still, uh, Last Temptation took four years. The Weasel one took seven years to do. That would drive me crazy. I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, because it's like there is an obsessiveness to, like, it, like I'd be like, oh, like I've been working on this thing with a friend of mine for a while. And I'm just like, God, fuck! I just want to get this over with. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. That's why it takes me a long time to dedicate myself to one. Like, I, I don't have a novel that I'm dedicated to right now because I really have to want to do it before I decide to dedicate that time. The clearance one, I am not a person that is even interested in like fan fiction. I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. I was in New York in the subway, and I and I said to myself, I don't think George's brother wouldn't even have been at that sled hill if George wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> so he wouldn't have died because he wouldn't have been there. <laughs> That's a great idea. So then it came to me, it's like, oh, well, maybe Clarence is making up his own way. And then it, it all came about how trying to predict the future is almost impossible and that there's so many different pathways it could have gone and for an angel to assume he has you know the future in his in his mind's eye 
was a little full of hubris. So that's kind of what that story. And I just, it, it wouldn't just leave my head. I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to base something on a, something that's so popular. But because uh, I knew I wouldn't do a popular take on it. Um, but, uh, but it never went away. So I did it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, I, sometimes you just got to get that something out of you. Was there, was there any like conflicts with, because those are such, was there any legal conflicts because of those characters existed in A Wonderful Life or? Yeah, we'll find out. Oh, you, you just did it? <laughs> that's, uh, that's really, I mean, I would think somebody would be. Matt, you just got to kind of do things. And then if people approach you, that's kind of the way you do it. And then they approach you, you just stop, you know, or find the right way, you know, the legal way to do it. Um, I, th I thought it was just so old that it wouldn't have mattered. And it's, it's, it's. I don't know. I, I really honestly do not know if it was illegal or not. Well, I guess it doesn't matter. I mean, once it's out in the, the ether, so to speak, I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, there's fan fiction all the time. Like those Star Trek people and things don't think, I don't think they get permission for that stuff. Uh, that's, that's another reason I like, I didn't really want to do it either because I didn't want to feel like, I even got accused of this by some, I don't even know this person, but they Facebooked me and said, you're just you know, living off someone else's creation, you know, you're not a writer at all. I was like, well, obviously you don't know anything else that I've done. Because <laughs> I, I, I really didn't want to do, I just didn't want to do that book. And then, but like I said, it never went away out of my head. Yeah, now, because like, you're, like you said, you, I mean, you do a lot of, you wouldn't do something that would be a popular idea. And that's, it's interesting because I think, I don't know, like, have you ever tried to acclimate because I have been stupid enough to be like, I'm going to write something that's going to be really popular. <laughs> like, and I'm incapable of doing it, I think. Oh, I th you and I are probably very similar, because I am too. I'm actually, you know, there's a lot of novelists, uh, people that do studying and know exactly what they're, what they're writing, and, and they can alter their style for whatever is popular. I can't, I can't do it. Um, and it's also never really interesting to me to do it, but... Uh, I did try a little bit with Clarence. Once it was written, I got a, an editor to, to help me try to make it a little bit more palpable for, because we knew that people that love the movie were going to see it. So we had to give them something uh, other than my heady, you know, philosophical, nonlinear style. So, so he helped me a lot in trying to make it more palpable for that, that larger crowd that would probably read it. But I fought a lot. Me and him fought a lot about keeping a lot of the... I don't know, my flair, you know, sort of confusing uses, usages of adjectives and, you know, sentence structures. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because especially, I think if anybody who wants to do something that's a little outside of the norm, it's, it is amazing how much conflict you become against. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's like if somebody would have told Cassavetti, he's like, no, nah, you don't, you really shouldn't be doing this. It's like, then we wouldn't have any of those super great fucking movies. <laughs> yeah. You never know. I mean, you just, I, that's what I said. I really don't think I, I have any choice. I really, I mean, that might be not be true, but it, it's set in my head that I can't really do anything that's mainstream. It just never comes out that way. I mean, I was in a weasel, the screeching weasel of, sparked so many mainstream bands but Ben's voice the way we played would have never been mainstream so it, it wasn't only that we didn't want to sign to majors but we just didn't think it belonged there it would have failed um, and I, I kind of feel like that way about the Neo Futures too we never 
we're like the most popular show in Chicago for 20 something years, but it never grows. You know, the, it doesn't get any bigger. Yeah, and I, but I, I mean, the fact that it is the most popular show there and that it's been going on for so long says, I mean, I would be thrilled with something like that in under my belt. I mean, I've had things, you know, in the ballpark briefly, but it's like, <laughs> but I mean, for 20 something years, and that show was like, I remember seeing that show and just being like mind blown by so many different things that went on with that show. Yeah, no, I no, I I have no, I have no way complaining. I'm so proud to be pr- part of that company. I just think it reaches a certain point, and the, the the way the company is built as a collective will never be as popular as a Steppenwolf or uh, any other. You know, move on to no no one from that company has ever gotten like an agent, you know, a movie agent or anything from it. It's just uh, it's not seen that way, and I think that's true for a lot of the creativity I do. It's just not looked at as like a, I don't know, valuable, you know, move for an agent or some producer. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was having somebody was telling me yesterday that that Spielberg and um, Lucas were saying that they are because things have become so big and so money oriented that even like he was he was like a hair away. Spielberg was a hair away of taking Lincoln to HBO. And Lucas couldn't almost get that uh, that red flyers or that whatever that his re- like these guys who created the blockbuster yeah like wow. can't do s- s- somewhat smaller films it's like it's a weird it's a weird time f- where it's almost they're sh- forcing you to to be mainstream and it's like the the alternative is seems to be sort of like finding its new ground it's it's very interesting yeah and then it leaves people like us and you know the the wonderfulness of the internet but it's all a lot of luck and just it, it is it just really makes you think about how luck is involved in having something spread viral or you know it's just so bizarre yeah. it has nothing to do with talent <laughs> I, I mean talent does take a play in it that's what keeps it around but it doesn't take talent to get it noticed it is great though I mean you can't I mean, I I remember like twenty years ago, if you wanted to make a short film, it was almost impossible. Yeah. And now it's like we can do. People can be creative so much easier, and it's like. But then the you know the, I guess the flip of that is it becomes so saturated. Yeah, I I and I I I try to stop myself from complaining about that because the the opposite isn't any better. <laughs> I mean, I love being able to do my own podcast and being on podcasts like this. I love being able to you know shoot videos easily or you know send my writing into the world, be able to print it myself. So yeah, I, do I, f- I can't complain really. I feel like I I do honestly believe that good. If somebody is doing honest good work, it's going to be found, and it might not be. To maybe to the level it was like forty years ago, but I do think like it'll get out there, and you will get attention and I don't I I think that's encouraging to me because there's always been a lot of garbage (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I'm I'm with this with my new podcast with the Jughead's Basement I I do have a little bit of an 
since I'm getting older, you know, I used to keep all my identities separate too because I like that idea of, you know, that's why you may have never known because like at Columbia, I never talked about being on tour. Mark Montgomery, who was a huge Weasel fan, didn't even know I was in Weasel and I worked with him for like three years or three or four years already and at Columbia before we found out. Um, it's not until recently that I actually started combining them because I'm getting older and it's like, I've put so much energy into all these different personalities that I didn't feel like I was gaining the, I don't know, respect or even financial respect. <laughs> so now I, I have a little bit more of an eye on trying to cultivate, uh, like, I, like going to bands I know in order to get other bands that are more popular and things like that. But it's one of the only projects where I actually think about that is this podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, I just, it's, and it's amazing how Screeching Weasel is like so many of my friends, I, like I mentioned to Jonah Ray yesterday that I was going to be interviewing you. He's like, what? Like, he's like, that's, that's one of my all-time favorite bands. And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> I was like, you know, he has a podcast. He's like, what? You're kidding me. Like, <laughs> Yeah, he friended me. He friended me yesterday, right after I got that message from you. So yeah, I you know I sent uh, I sent I I hooked it up. I sent a uh, one of those request things for you guys. I was trying to get you to internet date. Ah, oh, you did that. See, I don't understand that stuff yet. When you, I never do that. But he was such a fan, and I had like, and he's such a you know great guy that I was like, oh, you guys would be friends anyway. But <laughs> um, but like you were saying about your like age and stuff, and like. Have you felt like, because I think we're in the same ballpark. I'm 44. You don't have to say your age if you're one of those guys. Yeah, uh, no, I just turned, uh, I'm 46, so. Oh. Yeah, you look better than me. <laughs> well, thank you. I think you look damn handsome, though, so. But do you feel like, because, uh, I don't know, there's such a different attitude about the world you have from your 20s, and I don't know, do you feel like your attitudes about a lot of things creatively and whatnot are kind of, I don't know, I, has it changed at all? It, the last couple of years have been rough, so I don't know how to answer that. I don't know if the, it's just circumstances or if it's this age. Um, but I've actually felt I've lost my identity more than, you know, you, they say you're not quite know your identity until you're like 30s or 40s, but I feel like I've lost it a bit right now. And I don't know if that's a product of my age. Uh, maybe I'm analyzing it too much. Um, but but I definitely do feel more of a, a pressure to solidify more than to just go out and create whatever the hell I want. When you say you lost your identity too, do you feel like that, or a little bit of it, do you feel like, is that kind of getting in your head a little bit when you're trying to do something? or? or yeah, it does. It does. I haven't been as sociable as I, as I like to be. Um, you know, I tend to, you know, as writers, we, I mean, I, I think we either give into just being on our computers isolated or, or we fight it. And I, I kind of, I've always put up a good fight with being social and both introverted. Uh, but now I'm a little more social conscious and a little bit more angry than I've ever been before. Uh, just at myself, mostly. Not like politically angry? Yeah, no, not politically. I, you know, I've never been really too political. I don't understand what's going on and I don't think anybody ever tells the truth. Uh, I can't even, if, I, I always say if, if you can't even get along with your friends, how are you going to run a whole country? <laughs> uh, but I also know that I'm living in a country where it's very important to take place in that. So I've actually started voting lately, and but I never had before. See, that's funny because I'm moving away from voting. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I feel like I, I definitely like. I'm like, I will never vote for a, a one of the two. I mean, I've always voted Democrat. I would never vote Republican. But I'm like, I don't even believe their bullshit anymore. Like, I just, I'm like, it's all pointless. Like, I just feel like they're all in the same bag and they're just sort of putting on a show. But at the end of the day, it's the same bullshit. Yeah, I think one of, one of the, this to go back to Weasel. I think one of the ways I actually affected Ben when he was writing. We were both more social oriented anyway, but we kind of questioned whether we were going to become any way political because we came out of that sort of hardcore political heavy politics in like the late 80s with music because of Reagan and all that. But I really just said, I go, I can't believe anything I read in the newspapers. All newspapers have a point of view from, you know, Democratic or Republican. I, I wouldn't be able to contribute anything to that. So we pretty much made a decision to be more socially political than, uh, like, uh, governmental politics. Did you did that get any backlash at all from the scene, or did no one really? No, it was separating out anyway. Like the the pop punk scene, which wasn't even around then yet, uh, was starting with us and you know Green Day. So it was moving away from the the political hardcore bands already. Um, now it just it, it separated the audiences more. You know, they used to, all all audiences used to go to all shows back then more, and then it started separating more around that time. Yeah, that's a pretty great scene to have been involved in. I mean, it's like such. I I don't know if there was. I mean, maybe I'm don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but I feel like that was such a powerful time for Chicago music. And I don't, I, I, like I said, maybe I'm out of touch, but I don't feel like there was much after that era that was as, I don't know, thriving? Am I out of line with that? I, you know, honestly, man, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I think the, the, the scene that was the best to us was the one right before us with Naked Raygun, Articles of Faith, a lot of, you know, effigies. Um, I think we sort of... The suburban punks, which is what we were known as, sort of took it out of the state. So we hardly ever played Chicago. So I didn't know any of those like Material Issue or uh, Liz Fair or Smashing Pumpkins. We weren't any anywhere part of that. Uh, we became more part of a you know national uh, punk movement. Yeah, when you were saying you guys like influenced a great number of bands after you, does that ever like? Because I was like, I remember hearing a band, and I was like, "Oh my God, you guys are just doing Jesus Lizard!" Like, and I'm like, "Yeah." Does the Jesus like? Do you hear that? And do you get annoyed, or is that flattering? Oh, it's it's flattering. Um, it depends on the band. I mean, sadly, that a lot of pop punk has sort of de-evolved, and it's just become you know sugary candy, which a lot of music does. You know, it becomes more of the surface level of what it was, um, because that's the easiest thing to go to. Whereas if you actually look at Ben's lyrics, they're goofy as hell, but there's also like I said, some social politics are going. So I have a mixed feelings about it because uh, I think musically it's kind of cool, but usually what this, they're singing about is pretty lame. Yeah. I, and then we get blamed for that. <laughs> that's not your fault, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah, because it is like there are some of these punk bands in there. I don't even consider them. I'm just like, that's. I'm sorry, but that's not punk. That's like if my mom can tolerate this, it's not. Yeah, I, I got invited to a Blink-182 show. Uh, That's who I was thinking about when I was talking. Yeah, it was them and uh, Alkaline Trio. It was, I think, right when Blink-182 got real big. And I was backstage, and they had said, this is a song we stole from Weasel. And I was like, oh, where's my money from? <laughs> <laughs> but when, when, I, when they asked me backstage what did I thought of them, I go, 
I was really offended by them because they they're they're so crude. Like, and, and I'm not going to call them homophobic because I actually don't think they are. I just don't think they know what they're doing. You know, they're being telling stupid homophobic jokes on stage to like 12 year olds. And I was just offended by them. And I told them backstage, I go, yeah, I don't really like what you guys do. <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I, and I said, I said, all you have to do is say anything and everyone starts clapping. I, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was nice to them, but I let them know that I didn't really care for it. Well, that makes me respect you so much. <laughs> How did they respond? Uh, they just kind of looked at me. My sister was a huge fan of them and she came with too. So the, <laughs> I talked to her about that also. I think they took it fine. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really know. You know, I don't know behind the scenes how they took it, but they thought they just said that's cool. You know, that's cool. But I mean, it is irresponsible if you're t t sort of even if you think you're being glib or whatever to be making homosexual jokes in front of twelve-year-olds because they they're going to emulate that. Yeah, they weren't going and they weren't going to change because of what I said. So I didn't really hammer down the point or anything. I just you know said my piece and then. I think we left. Yeah, they should have kept it punk, and they should piss in front of the twelve-year-olds. Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what. But you know, then there's people like Iggy Pop and whatever. You know, uh, you know. But they were playing against people that were older, their age. Then I mean, punk didn't come for like that young of an age audience until them, basically. Green Day, Link One Eighty Two. You know, it was your peers before. Now you're playing to like little kids. Yeah, and that's true. It's and it's. Yeah. It's like, I remember like the first time I heard punk. I mean, it was like somebody gave me a mixtape and I just remember in high school, like playing it quietly because I thought I was like, my mom is going to think I've lost my fucking mind because <laughs> <laughs> it was so like, you know, like uh, suicidal tendencies and stuff. And in the, I'd never heard content like that in music before, you, you know, it, when you grow up in a shitty suburb of Chicago, it was yeah. just mind melting. I always thought it was interesting these uh, punk kids that had their parents come to their show. I never, I knew my mom didn't want to, and I never invited her. Uh, and my my later band, like Even in Blackouts, is sort of my trying to come to terms with loving my mother and her influences on me musically, and also the energetic punk influences. I tried to combine them a bit, um, but because I never really had like a rebellious part of me, I just liked the punk music. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to rebel against anybody. Yeah, and it's interesting. Felt weird. Felt weird doing that, and she knowing that she didn't like it. What did like? What was your mother's inf musical influences on you? Because I, I, I find uh, uh, Jim Croce, you know, Cat Stevens, uh, Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that one. That one I don't care about as much, but he's all right. But really, the Cat Stevens and the Jim Croce, uh, and she, you know, she liked some earlier uh, Aerosmith and stuff like that, but. It was mostly uh, acoustic music that she really dug. Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, my house was filled with Anne Murray and Barry Manilow as well. And I think about yeah. as edgy as it got was the uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you had older, I don't, I don't know, siblings too. My older brother is what introduced me to, like, his room was like a dream come true of, like, rock bands. Uh, but all the... His whole room was posters and Circus Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, and they were all crispy because he smoked like in his room all the time. So it was a fire hazard. But I used to go, <laughs> I used to go in there and just learn about like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and uh, UFO, and those became some of my favorite bands and probably influenced me more than punk music. 
Yeah, that was it. Was all the same. That brother's room was exactly the same, except it was the, it was marijuana smoke, not. Cigarette. Well, yes, both. My brother had was both. The only influence my brother had that I I, I could not get into was Frank Zappa. I can't get into Zappa either. Yeah, I had a hard time, and I also just have it a hard time. I think because of that, like he would back in the days when he was just trying to cause trouble, he would come home at like three in the morning and blast. Uh, you know Joe's garage, and I, I had to get to sleep to go to you know <laughs> school in the morning. So I just have bad memories, and I've tried to listen to it since, and I just I can't get into it. Now, is there even like as a musician who like where you're like I where you're like oh okay I appreciate what he's trying to do, or is it just like no I'm not getting on board with this? Wait, is that with Frank Zappa? Yeah, um, I do actually appreciate what he, he does, but I I don't it, I don't get it. I, I don't feel it. It, it's not a part of me. Um, I've seen interviews with him, and I really admire that sort of oh, anal, that really anal, very picky take on crazy, funny, you know, rebellious music. But I just don't like it at heart. Him and uh, Captain Beefheart, like Steve Walker loves Steve Walker loves him, my good friend. But I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, Captain Beefheart, and Beefheart was such, a, I guess, a big influence on later Tom Waits, and so I'm like, oh, I should like this, and I just can't, and I love Tom Waits to pieces, as you yeah, as you know. Yes, me too. Uh, but I'm also more of a fan of the older Tom Waits. I, I love the, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen-influenced, uh, you know, Bob Dylan-influenced early albums and more swingy stuff of... Uh, uh, Closing Time is my favorite record by by far. I'm, uh, I like the Frank Wild Years era. The weirder he gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild Years was good. Wild Years, I have to admit, that's if of his the way he's become. Like we did, we did Rain, Rain Dogs and Wild Years are the ones where I sort of accepted that crazy uh, where he can hardly sing anymore. But did you like and that now with your podcast too? Because your podcast is solely like mostly music and you've been because I see you post too a lot on Facebook like you're trying to hunt down like uh, ex-members of uh, was it weren't you recently looking for guys from the queers or am I nuts yeah I, I got all the queers uh, Joe's been a little uh, squirrely I mean I know all those guys but the ones that I was I was trying to get Dave Grohl because he was a huge fan of Naked Raygun who I just did uh, just got done doing all the interviews for a Naked Raygun podcast so um, but I didn't succeed in that. But yeah, I saw that. I was trying to. I was trying to. I was racking my brain. I'm like, I got to know somebody. <laughs> yeah. But it's pretty. I got my favorite band. My whole favorite band ever is this band called the Feelies out of New Jersey, and I, I just did an interview with uh, five different interviews with them separately. That's kind of my my thing for the podcast is I won't do band interviews. I have to interview everyone in the band and separately. Um, so that was great, and they, you know. They started the whole Maxwell movement. They, you know, Peter Buck from REM produced their records, and uh, they toured with Lou Reed. So I got a lot of uh, cool background from them. Do you talk to them about like the entire band experience, or do you centralize it on like one album? Because I, I, yeah, I, I focus on one record, but I allow myself to go, you know, to through the history of the band, but mostly focusing on a particular record. That's really um, awesome. I mean, there's no one doing podcasting like that I mean and it's I guess probably being a former musician in a cool band that helps is that help you land these people or does it make it 
a little bit more difficult. I don't think the, the coolness of the podcast has caught on yet. I think <laughs> I think what I kind of got going for me is I think since I do have a little bit of a reputation myself, I'm not afraid to just approach someone, you know, or email them. Uh, and it, this Facebook is pretty wild. Like I found the drummer from the Feelies there. And then once I got talking to him and he realized I was, a, you know, kind of a nice guy, he opened me up to the rest of the band. So that's the way it's kind of been. Um, and most of them have no idea. They don't even know the podcast. I've never heard it. Most of the bands that have done it have never even heard it. Yeah, it's, I, I, I think, I don't know. I, I really dig the the form of podcasting and it I kind of didn't discover this until about a year into doing it but it's like in an era of where there's so much fast paced like you got Vine you got Twitter you have all these things where it's like get out the information get out the and it's like it's really ca causing like a great alternative to slow paced sort of I don't know entertainment and information and yeah. exploring and it's uh, it's really fascinating to me it's like it's really hopeful to me actually <laughs> yeah to me it's a it's a big me personally it's a big since i love editing and stuff it's a big return to that a movement i never was a part of you know way before me with the radio play sort of uh, approach to it i love i love that aspect and i think podcasts allow you to there's many things it allows you to just be free form and then but it also allows you to be really uh, precise with environmental sounds it's it's i think it opens up a lot of stuff that you're right that you know, when you're tweeting or, you know, something short, it forces you to be short. This, you can have like a six hour podcast if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are, and there are dudes who have like two or three hours and I'm like, and so, and they have like solid listenership. And it's like, I'm just thankful that there's people out there still who are like, I'm going to fucking listen to something. Like I'm going to listen to something that takes two hours opposed to, you know, what's happening on Vine. I, gotta, yeah. I mean, it's like, because I get panicky that like, oh my God, we're like creatively, we're losing our attention and like, our focus and it's just going to get worse. We'll just have more Transformer movies or something. <laughs> I, I think there's always, I think that's the great thing about the world or even creativity is that there's always those fighting forces that want to make things as easy as possible. And then there's always that other side that wants to slow down and make, you know, and really be intellectual about it. I think those two forces will always be at play well I hope the slow bees win <laughs> but and what what would made you just interested in going into the podcasting world was it just what yet another thing you wanted to uh, jump into to um, distract yourself from the other things <laughs> <laughs> well I think originally uh, my my girlfriend uh, I wanted to do something with my friend Eric Roth who uh, had done a, a show of mine he's like a very young kid um, and we, everyone said that we we're kind of funny together and the, the best format I thought of was doing a podcast because there's no way I was going to find a, a radio broadcast or I don't even know how to do something like that. So I uh, came from that idea. We did a, one called the, the Hole in 30 Days where we document our lives for 30 days. Um, and that's how it started. And then when he moved away to L.A., we did a couple, but then it got more difficult. So it kind of moved into... Uh, and actually, if, if for a little bit of story, on Facebook, uh, there's this magazine, I can't remember the name right now, but they asked me to host a, a Facebook day. I guess they have someone to just host their page for a day. And I guess they get a lot of feedback, and this guy approached me about doing a podcast about music. And I, and I said, I wrote back and said, well, you know that my ideas are never simple, and it probably won't make you any money. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he, he supported it. Uh, it's, it's these guys uh, called, uh, I just forget their name, TNH Network is what it's called, but oh, Tuesday Night Hoot Nanny. Uh, and they just had a bunch of extra, whatever you call it, podcast megabytes or whatever on their site. So he asked me to come up with any idea I wanted, and I came up with the idea of studying a record each month. I think it's great. Yeah, but what I, you know, and what I, the, the fighting part for me was that I always wanted to be having writers doing pieces. Like I, I've moved more into doing allowing interviews, but it's also really important to me that it's about fans who are writers writing pieces about specific songs uh, which the Tom Waits one was all that that was like the my like the perfect one I thought the, um, which I was a part of that not to yeah not to brag, but I mean I was whether I would have been a part of that or not I thought it was such a great like and I was I've been telling I've been telling people about it a lot recently again and it's just it's such a cool it's just such a cool idea to me like it it was one of those ideas where I was kind of like, why didn't you think of that asshole? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, so I go back and forth. Uh, if I if I can get a hold of a band, I do one more like an interview. It's still done in that structure. Like, it's done by the songs. I'll just have less writers, you know, I'll have three or four instead of like 12 writers. Uh, and then if it looks like it's just going to be someone I want, some friend of mine wanted to, dedic- you know, really focus on a record, then we'll just get great writers. Like, for instance, we're about to ask you, me and Walker, to do uh, the Pogues. Oh, um, fucking Pogues. Yeah, he wants to do uh, rum and sodomy, so. It's, uh, they're such a, it drives me nuts because they're another band that anytime I hear, like, bands they've influenced, and there's a lot of kids I hear especially around St. Patrick's Day in L.A., they always are like, hey, play Dropkick Murphys. I'm like, have you even heard of the fuck? Like, they don't even know the Pogues. And I'm like, there's no comparison to me. Yeah, so that's 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 one of the ones that's in, in the works. That that one is pretty much going to be in all, getting all the best writers we know to... Yeah, I think that actually the podcast has worked in that way where since I do have mostly pop-punk audiences, the ones that have opened minds actually will learn about records that they never heard about yeah that's I think that's important and a a great thing to do yeah I think it's going to be hard for them to swallow my next one the Feelies but the Feelies were a band that were playing right alongside the Ramones and Talking Heads and uh, friends with Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and I think if people were open their mind and see the link they'd appreciate it but I think that's going to be a hard sell yeah but their music is so good yeah I think uh, there's like certain bands like that where I'm not I'm always shocked that there's like certain bands that have a resurgence and I'm like why is this guy not have like why did that not happen <laughs> yeah. like, and to me they seem like one of the bands that sh- surely should and they still am I nuts or they still play around well, are you talking Pogues or Feelings Feelings oh uh, yeah they just got back together they're actually closing out the Maxwell's uh, I might fly out to go see it the, the Maxwell's is closing in Jersey yeah. That's uh, even though I've never been to Maxwell's, that was heartbreaking to me. Yeah, yeah, I played there with Weasel. Yeah, with Creature Weasel, the the band Helmet came to see us. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, I might. I, it's actually I'm in Baltimore at a festival, a punk festival, and I might stay an extra week and go see the Feelies play on their last show there. Um, but yeah, they're they're an amazing. I I never got to see them in the early days, and I saw them in Chicago for free downtown and. They were amazing. They're, you know, they're like in their mid fifties, and they're they're amazing. They just know how to play. Yeah, 
I think the Pogues are the same way. They're like 60s. And I saw them with Steve, you know, a couple of years back, and they were just amazing. And he's gotten his, he's getting his teeth fixed, I read recently. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I have a friend who's a dentist, and they're looking for the, and he's, my friend's a cosmetic dentist, and he's like, he, he like emailed, emailed to see if he could be the guy to do it. Wow. Well, good luck to him. That's a lot, That's a lot of work. <laughs> no, I know. It's probably just going to be bashed out in a week or two. So. I guess you you do a lot of uh, collaborating and stuff, right? I mean, you most of your writing, though, is on your own, correcty? Yeah, it's funny. I, was, I can't remember who I was talking about this with the other day, another creator that... I, I do work in a collective, but there's always part of that element that's has isolation involved in it. Like I never create, I never write uh, as a group. It's hard for me to do that. But once I'm beyond the writing point, I love being part of a collective, a uh, collective of minds. But I, I have a hard time writing that way. Did you did you not collaborate much with the with the in the bands? Or was that all you'd go and do your own thing as well? Uh, even in Blackouts is the first one where we collaborate. But even that, you you know, you sort of go home, write a song, bring it into the band, and let everyone play their parts. That's still what I mean. Like they're still like creating. And Ben would do that. Ben would basically write the foundation and then bring it in, and we'd all fill in the parts. Um, yeah, we're not much of a jam band. I'm not. I, I don't play good enough to be. And you got to kind of be into jamming to to write as a group. Yeah. I just want to get it done. <laughs> yeah, and that's how I felt a lot of times where I'm like, can't we just fucking go and do this on our own? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's part, I, that's another, the duality that, that I have that I think about is that, that fight to want to be a collective, but ultimately there is something I want done the way I want it done. Yeah, and I'm going to be wrapping up soon, but I wanted to make sure I had, were you in Cincinnati recently doing work with puppets as well? Yeah, there's a company called Madcap Puppets that uh, there was a man who used to work with Jim Henson and he started his own company in Cincinnati. Um, we're basically bringing um, puppet shows to elementary schools all over the Midwest, but we made it all the way to like uh, New York and West Virginia and South Carolina and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's huge puppets. It's They basically send two people out into the world into elementary schools with 600, 700 kids from pre-K to eight um, doing these grim fairy tale shows and small puppets to eight foot tall puppets. It was quite a challenge. Uh, for eight months, I did that. Had you done any p puppet stuff before? No, I've always been, even before the Neo Futures, I've always been fascinated with uh, more like inanimate objects like I used to just like make almost more like Charlie Chaplin with the like the forks and the <laughs> and the biscuits I always like to make inanimate objects do things like move around so I came more from that element so I actually learned a lot we had a week of study with the guy the artistic director and I, I actually learned quite a bit and then you're sort of thrown you know trial by fire thrown right into the element with 600 kids and you sort of learn a lot that way too Pretty wild. I mean, it's. You're, yeah, I would have stayed on if I didn't have to live in Cincinnati. Is, <laughs> is that just terrible? I've, I think I've been there for like two seconds. Yeah, I, I really feel, feel bad not liking a place, but I can now take some place off my list of places not to live. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to wrap up, where can others. Uh, can you please tell us 
uh, where people can find all all these splendorous uh, creative ventures. Yeah, I done. I try to have a hub. It isn't really, it isn't great. I just, uh, it's johnjugheadpearson.com is my hub. Um, but it's, it's, I do it myself, so it's not a great hub, <laughs> but it's a good place to start. <laughs> and then, uh, and yeah, but they can find your books and your, uh, yeah, all the information is there. Yeah. Johnjugheadpearson.com. Uh, I have like links to the podcasts and uh, there's links to the neo futurists and uh, the books and the bands. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out to do this. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, you too, Matt. And uh, hopefully I'll see you in Chicago or something soon. All right, sir. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please donate some money. You can go to the page there on feralaudio.com. You can donate some money. We uh, sacrifice a lot. Dustin Marshall, the man the man behind it, uh, really dedicates his life to putting these shows up uh, for Feral Audio. And uh, so he really could use, you know, the dough. I could use some dough. You know, you could just skip a Starbucks coffee today and uh, give us the $2 or $3. I don't know how much Starbucks costs these days. Um, yeah, and if you can't afford to donate something, maybe you're going to need to buy something on Amazon, use my link, and I get a kickback of that money. That'd be awesome if you did that. Listen to the other shows on Feral Audio, and also you can follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at twitter.com. I, uh, I hope you enjoyed this show, and I hope you enjoy your life and your day, and it is my belief as of late that maybe art is a hope, is hope, for, uh, because... Since the dawn of time, man, it felt a need to create, right, folks? And I think it's the one thing that sometimes takes us out of our heads, whether we be creating it or enjoying it, and sort of can unify people and all that stuff. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.
the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.